Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In our 200th episode, we look back at the last three years to see what we got right, what we got wrong, and what the pandemic, Brexit, Bitcoin and cost of living crisis taught us as investors. With Mel Sherry, Wealth Manager, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome back to Word on the Street. Now, as usual today, we'll digest what's been another busy week. We say this every week, don't we? Across the global economy, we've had interest rate news, IMF forecasts, and of course, corporate earnings as well. But this is also a bit of a landmark edition because it marks our 200th episode. Pretty good achievement. Three-year anniversary of the podcast. And as it happens, I gather also the three-year anniversary of Brexit. So, Taking a step back, we inadvertently launched this weekly series, didn't we, by chance, just before the global pandemic that, of course, remains with us today. And so we just felt this would be a pretty good opportunity to drag Will back into the room today to review everything else that has ensued in between. Now, Will, aside from observing the great work you and my team have genuinely done to help navigators over the past three years or so, I've also learned to be frank about your love of fried food, medieval history, Cricket, to name just a few, but I'm also going to give honorary mentions to the emergence of Lego Thanos. If you yes. don't understand that, have a yes. look at LinkedIn. And then we've also had the occasional background feature from your Dashant dogs, which I've That's always true. Not always my Dash, not my I know, I knew you were going to say that. They were foisted on me by my family, by my wife and daughter particularly. Uh, I didn't even get to name them. My son and I were excluded out of this. <laughs> I think he wanted Megatron and Wolverine. Uh, they went for Minnie and Frankie instead. And actually, just with fried food, it is fried food, but also, as you know, it's deep fried food. I think that's an important distinction. A, good, so, a yes. good clarification. Yeah. So I'm sorry you've had to know so much about my life, but yeah. I've quite enjoyed it. Little, quite little, enjoyed little it. snippets, but yeah. But look, I'm sure what people are really interested in today is hearing a bit about markets. Mm -hmm. And um, you know I like holding your feet to the fire. Always (laughs) enjoy this. And just understand really what you and the team have learned from an investment perspective over the past few years. And also to see if there's anything you might have done differently, because hindsight, after all, is a pretty wonderful thing. But before we get into that, let's just uh, explore what's happened this week and start with the UK. Look, I know you say it all the time. The economy doesn't actually matter much to the world of investments in truth but it does of course to our listeners it determines you know we live here it also determines our livelihood if you like and let's be frank the imf this week was pretty gloomy and that's created plenty of headlines so what's your take on all of that yes good opener miles what is my take on that i mean yes you're spot on Uh, there does continue to be a pretty gloomy doomy vibe surrounding the kind of uk the headlines blared i think that even russia was expected to do better this coming year which Mm. at least superficially seems like quite a thing given how much russia has been deliberately targeted economically in the last year Uh, i think a couple of context points from me as usual so first it's a forecast be wary of them yes like any any forecast it's not set it's far from set in stone you know these things can be talked at as if they've already happened but they haven't these should be seen in a way as rolling probabilistic guesses at the most likely path ahead for the uk not facts of the road ahead Uh, and as it goes it, it is not just the the imf but actually most professional forecasters see the UK underperforming most of its peer group in the next year uh, and beyond to a degree. So it's not the IMF in isolation. 
But second, don't get too caught up in it all if you can help it, to be honest. Not only is the future not set in stone ever, but there is still much that could go right for the UK economy in the quarters and years ahead, as well as wrong. Balance tends to get lost when the kind of commentary, when the talking heads start kind of fetishizing the the UK's decline. We love to roll around in this stuff a bit too much. Mm. And you do lose track of, I think, in that thing of some of the potential positives that could go right in the UK. So just a balanced view. And hot off the press, just a brief comment, it'd be remiss not to. We've just, of course, seen the Bank of England hike mm-hmm. interest rates again by another 50 basis points. It takes us to 4%, yeah. doesn't it? Had the Federal Reserve as well last night. Brief brief thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, I think this sort of, you know, it's interesting from a... So the central bankers are still worried about inflation. There's no doubt about that. In the UK, you're seeing the inflation forecast sort of moderate a little bit. So there is a bit less inflation than we thought about. And we've, we've talked about this. Lots, know, yeah. That, that may provide some scope for central bankers to, to stop raising interest rates so expeditiously or as they call it so sharply as they have done over the last course of the last year it does feel like there's more to come in the UK and the US and indeed sort of Europe but certainly investors are kind of eyeing up this peak and you've seen this week you know certainly markets and investors in the US have really responded to their idea that you're starting to see a slowdown in the pace of rate hikes and actually interestingly to my mind anyway ignoring, sidelining quite a lot of the kind of forward-looking indicators, which actually are telling us that there's quite nasty times ahead in a way for the economy, potentially in the short term, which jars a little bit against that sort of more buoyant yeah, mood. Yeah. But there's a lot going on at the moment, as usual, and it's quite interesting to, to watch. But I, I would recommend the Bank of England website is a rich tool for those that uh, want to look into this stuff. There's accessible material, but you know, for you, for those that want to know about the, the UK economy and what's going on, I would recommend that the Monetary Policy Report is full of good detail and good stuff for those who want to explore further. Explore yeah. further, chimp out a bit on it. You yeah, know? absolutely. And look, I mentioned Brexit at the start. Mm. I fully appreciate this is something that's a little bit difficult for you to talk about. But it does seem, you know, looking at social media, that a lot of what I'm seeing there is pretty much screaming that everything is the fault of Brexit, or you have the complete flip side where everyone's saying it's the start of an economic boom and Brexit fueling that. So look, I know it's not easy to answer, but I'm guessing the reality is it's probably somewhere in between. Yeah, it's not easy to answer without getting sort of lynched by one side (laughs) or the other as soon as I exit the office. But no, I think some of the sort of more sober commentators, and there's one, you know, quite respectable economics professor, I thought, who focuses a lot on the UK, and he summed it up pretty nicely. And he basically argued that, you know, you could be reasonably confident in saying that Brexit has reduced UK trade and investment. There are a little cabal who deny this, but I I, I personally don't think that they are that credible, to be honest. We can debate the size of the effect here, but probably not the direction. Brexit has also, you know, clearly reduced migration from the EU, but increased it from, or we have seen an increase in migration from outside the EU. So overall migration has risen. And this is much as most respectable economists suggested ahead of the vote, to be honest. I think the overarching point to make, though, which we've made before, is that yes, from an economic perspective, this has been and likely will continue to be a headwind for the UK economy. However, Brexit is not a guarantee of economic failure either. Of course it isn't. There are all sorts of things we can do domestically to sort out the productivity problems that we have. And they came from, you know, they were not just, you know, they may have been cemented a little bit by Brexit, but they pre-exist Brexit. Yeah. And, and we can boost growth. I personally don't think 
that uh, tax cuts and deregulation are the answer. That is a formula that provided important impetus before in the early 1980s, famously so. But I'm not sure there is scope for a repeat necessarily. We are coming from much less onerous levels of red tape and marginal tax rates. Nonetheless, I think we do you know, continue to have huge and enviable strengths, as I just said, in this country, you know, the universities, the capital or other cities, comparative advantages and important industries, you know, financial services, potentially life sciences, all those kind of things. And I I also, again, this is a personal view, but do think that we want to aim for a minimal trade friction with Europe, at least the minimum that popular opinion or the perceived mandate would allow. Europe will remain our largest and most important trading partner. That is as close to a fact as you're going to get in economics, I think, that idea of gravity theory. But overall, just sort of summary, the realists perhaps on on both sides of the debate possibly always knew that the trade-off here is between kind of efficiency and sovereignty. The price of a bit more of the latter, and and economies are always trading this off. Every time you sign a trade deal, you're giving up. It's a difficult balance. Yeah, yeah, and it's not that no one fights. And, you know, every time you sign a trade deal with any country, you're giving up a bit of sovereignty in a sense. So the price of a bit more of the bit more sovereignty in a sense is a bit less efficiency it's not as clean cut as that but that's one way to think it and as you introduce more friction with your largest trading partner investment partner like i say that, that you know that doesn't have to be a disaster but it, it may help you tune out some of the extremes uh, which are very you know emotive and emotional you know people feel very very strongly about this on both sides and i suppose tied to that and really reflecting on the general point of this podcast which is obviously to take a bit of a step back and reflect on what's happened let's be frank watching and investing in capital markets over this period has been well you call it a tumble dryer experience a whirlpool you know one of my team the other day commented like did you always have like gray hair around the edges and things? it's a sign of wisdom and it's experience. a sign of wisdom wisdom and yeah experience, it's important exactly. but yeah look it's been a it's been a an interesting period to to put it lightly you know we've obviously had the global pandemic we've never really seen anything like that in the past hundred years it led to an unprecedented policy response, probably like, unlike anything we've ever heard before, right? War on the continent in Europe, very sadly, geopolitical ruptures, the list could go on and on and on and on and on. There must be some good tips in and amongst all of this for investors to, to take away. You're right, Miles. It has been a sort of really, I mean, tragic and, you know, in, in a way, informative period for sort of, you know, for human life. You, yes, have, to, you have to remember that. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I think it's been really important. And I think we will look back on this kind of period as a, as a genuine kink in our times where we ended up on a different path to the one we were before, maybe mm. 2004, mm. depending on how far you want to go back. But um, I guess humility is the main thing to think about here, to be honest. I know that's boring, but I think it is really, really helpful not just reminding yourself of it, but actually using it as a guide to who actually to listen to. A strong views should be a nudge to tune out, not tune in. The example that always springs to mind, actually, and I'm sure I've been guilty of this in the past, maybe even more, more recently, but last year I went along to a posh lunch. Uh, Very nice. Not deep fried chicken, sadly. Uh, and we were promised a kind of lunchtime keynote speech on kind of geopolitical forecasting. I'm definitely being unfair on uh, this guy, and I hope he—I hope he isn't listening. I'm sure he's not. But anyway, he came onto the stage and told us that he had foreseen Brexit, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, the great financial crisis, and now he was predicting World War Three and various other kind of horrors in the path ahead. Gasps from the audience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he'd, he'd managed this feat of kind of incredible geopolitical clairvoyance by unraveling various sub rhythms in deep history, visible only to him uh, and those, of course, that would pay for his services. Now, it's almost impossible to resist the urge to listen in these times of kind of chaotic times. 
there's of course no one who can tell the future reliably if, if they could and they invested in their vision they would not have to sell their services as a geopolitical soothsayer they wouldn't be at any lunch that I was able to attend <laughs> anyway the future is unknowable and history can contain important clues but no predestination that can only appear the case when viewing history after it has happened as you said right at the beginning now as it turned out this person had actually been an investor before this new career he had and his track record was not very pretty actually which suggests that the idea that he did have a third eye might be overstated we need humility as we you do, always say we do we do as you always say and the other thing i said at the start is i enjoy holding your feet to the fire and i don't <laughs> exactly. want to get too in your face but it's important to you know it's important to do this from time yes, to time i agree i, I agree. was naturally doing some research listening back to the first few episodes of this podcast back I when we first started. <laughs> i have to say our, our editing team have done a fantastic job because it sounds a lot better we don't have that crackling anymore yes. but look, i noticed by mid-february well, you were still pretty unsure about whether the pandemic would actually be global. Now, a harsh judge might actually say by that time it already was. So just just interested to get your take on that. You're right, Miles. And I think it's a good reminder. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Holding my feet to the fire indeed. No, I think it's a good reminder to be very careful about how you think, not just about the future, but even what's going on right now. I, I do think there's a couple of sort of further points to make here. So one, I mean... It, For me, I'm extremely lucky, and you know this well, to be surrounded by a very diverse team of extremely clever, highly motivated and very informed people who all specialise in various parts of the investment world. The culture of the team, and this is really important, I think, is very much one of open feedback. That's super important because... Nobody should be allowed to become de-anchored from reality or become overconfident. That's not specific to role or title. All speak openly and frankly about potential missteps or even the kind of language that might raise alarm bells in terms of overconfidence or various behavioural biases. The second point, and I think the more important point for clients, I think, is that because of that culture that I just described in large part, although we were talking about sort of those kind of probabilities, and yes, you know, I think me personally, I reflect that I was a bit late to sort of incorporate some of the incoming news. I did sort of change my views a bit slower than I Mm. should have done. But because of that sort of culture within the team, the actual invested portfolios, funds, multi-asset class funds and portfolios, we didn't enter the pandemic and all the capital markets chaos that ensued with big directional investment positions in our tactical asset portfolio, which is really about the short-term stuff. That could have really torpedoed performance. That actually allowed us, in a sense, the scope to add significantly to risk assets, so stocks, high yield, junk bonds, right near what turned out to be the bottom. Now, a number of less fortunate investors, in a way, had over-risked going in, and so they didn't have the kind of the budget to add risk at the bottom, which is kind of the worst case scenario. Some of that's just luck, truth, but I also like to attribute a very, very, very strong team here, which is lovely to be able to represent and occasionally make me look much more clever than I deserve. And I guess, thinking more broadly, it plays to the point you and the team regularly make about discipline mm-hmm. and also you know, the controls that need to be in place to maintain that discipline. Of course, the behavioural finance team, Rob and Meyer, they have a massive role yeah. to play there too. So I suppose, in essence, what we're trying to do here is just protect the outcome from one sole individual thought. 
Yeah, protect them from me, basically. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the key. I didn't want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're hinting enough. No, no, you're right. And no, you make a really good point. And there's, there's really is a, a, you know, a strong and important theme here. You know, beware the whim of the individual. Now, as our Rob and Meyer and co are constantly telling us, the, the behavioral experts, you know, we are essentially individuals. We're hardwired to be bad investors. We, this is humans in general, not just me and my research buddies <laughs> here. You know, we tend to overreact to news. Our view of the past is capable of being distorted in all sorts of really dangerous ways. Ways. We heard, you know, so on and so on and so on. Now, this is where having diverse perspective around the investment team, able to contribute and challenge on an even playing field, no matter the job title, that's mega, mega important. Now, we make sure that this is central to how we do things and assess opportunities in that tactical asset allocation, strategic asset allocation, and in how we select funds. You speak to the guys in the funds team and they will talk about the key role of culture in the funds we look at. The ones that blow up, it's so, so common that there is some middle-aged dude, usually a dude, who's made loads of successful calls, suddenly started to believe that he has, in reality, transcended above, above us mere mortals uh, and taken ever larger bets on his skill the bill always comes due because no such human exists we are all individually fallible history shows that our genius is collective not individual no matter how some historians like to portray it for sort of you know for the ease of our consumption now as it goes in our tactical asset allocation you know that short-term group of mm. uh, you know mix of assets we have devoted a lot of time and energy to developing tools and equipment so scorecards indicators that help reduce that key person risk you're talking about so the point being that it doesn't really matter who sits in my seat. It doesn't really matter who the CIO is up to a point. The research process leads inexorably towards a certain decision, if you think about it. It's about making sure that we continue to have abundant quality and the right tools and the team so that that decision maker at the top can surf there. Checks and balances Checks is the word. And Checks and balances. balances. Exactly. And what I've always liked to see sitting from the sidelines, actually, correct me if I'm wrong, is I know the team are tasked, right, with not just presenting their view that they think is going to happen. They'll often be challenged to present the case against their view, which again is Absolutely. another layer. It's so important. You've got it. And that allows you, if done properly, that allows you always to sort of stop yourself, you know, confirming your view. Because it's very easy to, you know, there's just fire hydrant of data coming out every day. Mm, mm. It's very easy to sort of, without knowing it, sort of carefully select the bits of data that support your pre-existing theory. So constantly for taking people, forcing people to take a seat outside of their, their previous view and have a look at the other side of the debate and try and find arguments there, that I think is a really good check against that that the guys have installed. And presumably it also informs right how we think about country allocations and the underlying investments, be that stocks or bonds in between. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right, Miles. I mean, you know, in a sense, you know, going off on a side rant, this is the whole point of liberal democracy, isn't it? I mean, it, it's not the idea that we, the people, know either how to rule the country or indeed who to pick unerringly. That just can't be true. We've got busy day jobs ourselves. We have ideas, suspicions, and sometimes a bit something a bit more strident and unsettling. However, the point is, really, I think that we get to move the individual on, the ruler on after a period, hopefully before they start believing their own infallibility. Yeah. Now that is also what corporate governance is about, checks and balances. We seem to love the idea, we're enthralled to the, of the idea to the omniscient individual, the superhero who can tweak the geopolitical strings to bring collective harmony or serve our domestic national interest perhaps or just have a continue to run an amazing company, the kind of Bismarck. But actually at the country level, there's pretty decent evidence that liberal democracy comes with lower borrowing costs as it goes. And I think that makes sense. The danger of of the autocrat for the would-be lenders is that 
he, mostly he, turns around and actually says, ah, you know what, I'm not going to pay you back. I need the money to build a giant statue of me. Suck it up. And that's harder to do for the egos in liberal, the inevitable egos in liberal democracy. So the shackling of, if you think about this, and I know I bang on about this a lot, but the shackling of the individual's whim began in Europe during medieval times in many senses and happened for all sorts of potential reasons. But one interesting idea is about the ability of a prevailing religion to confer uh, legitimacy on the leader. So a comparison here is sometimes made between you know Catholic medieval and early modern Europe and the role Islam played in the Ottoman Empire. But I've got I a smile on my face. Digress. I said at the start you like medieval history yeah. and you did a lot of this last week. So let's keep it in the modern day and think about one of the other major events of last year actually, yeah. the bursting of the of the crypto bubble. Yeah. That's at least how some would describe it. Yes. Now Bitcoin and others have come racing back so far this year. Of course, we're talking about a one-month period. But has your thinking changed at all? I'm guessing it probably hasn't. <laughs> no, I'm afraid it hasn't. No, we, we we didn't, you know, as you know, we didn't really go for anything in crypto. You know, we, we preferred to sit on the sidelines and look. The volatility alone was far too hair-raising for most of our clients, to be honest. I mean, many, many, many times more bumpy than what is traditionally the wildest ride offered in our asset class mix, you know, the emerging market equities. Mm. However, the other point remains, I think, for... The most part, many cryptocurrencies, and I'm really talking about the ones not tethered to other stuff like existing assets, currencies, or you know, central bank policy. This is intrinsically valued group like Bitcoin, like you mentioned. I'm still not sure that they're not an answer to a question we weren't really asking. We can't possibly tether our economy to a fixed supply of anything. I don't think. We tried that with gold. We abandoned it piece by piece for good reason. It's inherently deflationary and ever growing array of goods and services versus a fixed supply of currency. The other interesting point for would-be investors, and again, you know, Bitcoin, while it's so volatile, it's just no good as a currency, is it? I can't, you know, go to the shops and say, oh, you know, I'll have a pint of milk. Oh, no. I you don't have that tangibility. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the price, if the price changes on my way to the shops, then, you know, I'm not buying a pint of milk, I'm buying a penny chew suddenly, or actually I come back with a Ferrari, you know, that's not going to please my wife at all. No, you know I mean? no, I'm not going to go no. and buy a Ferrari. Obviously, that's not my thing. But the other interesting point for investors here, I think, is the role of real interest rates, so inflation adjusted interest rates, I should say. In the space of a few months last year, we saw kind of two year real interest rates in the US. And this is literally the, kind of the risk, you know, the most important inflation-adjusted interest rate, it went up something like 500 basis points. Staggering you know, Five moves. percentage yeah, points. Yeah. That's a kind of decade-long yeah. move. And it's a mega move by any standards. But the interesting thing is it came in a context where everyone, and really, I mean everyone, lots of people had become very comfortable with the idea that interest rates, real interest rates, would just trend down forever. They just extrapolated because that's what had happened in the last few decades. And all sorts of investments have become very comfortable with that idea from certain sectors in the equity market, you know, parts of the technology sector and so on, to cryptocurrencies. Now, there should be a good deal more humility out there now on extrapolating where real interest rates are heading and so on, I think, I hope. So in short... Crypto's a no, at least for now, at, at least, least for now, now from our perspective. But just briefly, one thing I do know you are pretty excited about, and probably for a lot of good reason, is in the technology space, the emergence of things like artificial intelligence. I know you've spoken about the fact that, you know, who knows, maybe we're seeing the next industrial revolution. That must play a part to play in that long term investment opportunity and, and reason to stay invested. You're too kind, teeing me up for the final thing I love. Yeah, no, I personally think you have to try pretty hard not to get excited in many ways. That doesn't mean there aren't wrong turns humanity can take from here. And there's certainly no shortage of threats, you know, bad actors, negative sun behavior and worse. The Straits of Taiwan are hotting up again. And you've mm. got Ukraine and, you know, all those kind of things and the environment. And 
you know, however, in a way like that is quite often the case, not necessarily the threats we face now. I don't think we've ever lived in a world where the environment is such a large and you know clear and present danger in a way. But in a way, you know, the point is that you would be wise not to underestimate our collective capability to solve the problems in the path ahead, primarily with technology, to be honest. And happily, that evolving technological frontier is what drives your long-term investment returns. So you can actually participate in the solutions to all our ills, hopefully, whilst growing your savings. So hopefully that's a very neat trick, but that's that's what a diversified investment portfolio potentially provides. Now, the final point, I think, just in terms of something that is worth thinking about with regards to the last few years in particular, and I guess reflecting back on our debate in general, we're always clamouring to sort of categorise the moment we're in, aren't we? Opinion writers and so on. Deglobalization, secular stagnation, whatever trend it is. You know, kind of big, mostly pretty reductive ideas that that summarise the age that we're in and sometimes influence the way we're investing. The familiar sort of warning here is be very, very careful of spending too much time on this stuff. Um, It's not that such efforts are invariably wrong, just mostly wrong, more that they mostly miss much important detail for investors. They're hard to make money out of reliably. And, you know, most of the time, the real trends that are shaping our lives won't really become visible until decades after, even centuries later. So there's still academic fisticuffs over the true causes of the first industrial takeoff in the UK, like 250-odd years ago. There surely should be some humility as to the major forces driving our own times. Basically, this kind of stuff should be kept for bad dinner party pub chat rather than any investment input, if you know what I mean. Got it. Look. Makes complete sense. Lots of tips, hopefully, to to take away from the last three years. And let's hope we're still talking here in the next three years. Lots of exciting times ahead. Thanks for listening. And we'll speak again next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value. And their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.